Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a bonus episode on Godzilla vs. Kong, and we have another one in the works about this year's Oscar ceremony. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. Our co-host, Tasha Robinson, could not be with us this week, but we have a very special guest, Jordan Hoffman. Jordan is a freelance film writer whose work you can find in Vanity Fair, The Guardian, The Times of Israel, and Decider. He also wrote for us at The Dissolve, Once Upon a Time. Hello, Jordan. Hello! My gosh, thank you for having me here. I'm thrilled. I would like to say, now that I have you all here in the little Zoom in front of me, I did not work for The Dissolve regularly, but I did it once in a blue moon, and every time I always felt like, hey, I'm at the cool kids table right now. I really always loved it. So thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to yap with you about two really great movies. Oh, you're already tipping your hand. Whoops, okay. Uh, so we, we are perhaps another pairing away from recording our first episode in the same room in over a year. Uh, save for Genevieve, of course, who lives in Michigan. Uh, we're all either fully vaccinated or waiting the requisite two weeks after the second dose when we can be in the same room together. Uh, we may be returning to the theaters soon. Uh, I've got my eye on heat at the music box. But not everyone is on the same vaccination schedule. So for now, we're sticking to quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're attending a wedding, and I'm going to try really hard not to make an embarrassing scene like I always do. So Scott, I mean, how hard is it not to make a scene? I mean, just don't make a scene. Yeah, you just have to remember, Scott, it isn't about you. This isn't your special day. But what if I have scores to settle? There's nothing more satisfying than shoving a foe into a precariously mounted, multi-tiered wedding cake. I haven't been to a wedding in ages. I have a lot of pent-up animosity. Dude, you gotta channel that negative energy just into your nasty subtweets like the rest of us. How do you know the bride and groom, anyhow? Are you part of the wedding party? Well, well, the groom is an old college buddy. I haven't seen him in years, but we were close once. I look forward to giving a toast. I don't have anything written down. But I think I'm a good improviser. I have some long, rambling, pointless stories to share about how he played a small but significant role in my life story. No one is going to want to hear that, Scott. Well, what about the vows I wrote for them? The guests don't usually write the vows. Maybe you should just limit yourself to dancing at the reception. Fantastic. I love dancing. The chicken dance, the electric slide, YMCA. I like to request those loudly and repeatedly if the DJ doesn't replay them right away. Oh my God, it's a nightmare. Scott, if we're ever at the same wedding, I'm keeping my distance. Well, if you do, you may wind up with a face full of frosting, my friend. <laughs> Genevieve, what event catastrophes do we have lined up this week? The new indie comedy Shiva Baby stars Rachel Sennett as a directionless, college-age Jewish woman who attends a shiva at her parents' behest without really knowing who is being mourned. 
She hopes to fake her way through this family obligation, but when she bumps into an ex-girlfriend and the sugar daddy who has been bankrolling her lifestyle, her secrets and lies bring her more attention than the dead. Her predicament reminded us of Anne Hathaway's troubled bridesmaid and Jonathan Demme's Rachel getting married. Though Hathaway's Kim isn't the one getting married, she takes center stage on her sister's wedding weekend, where everyone is concerned about her tenuous hold on sobriety and an incident from the past that still haunts Kim and her family. So this week, we'll see how much Kim can knock a Jonathan Demme party off its groove in Rachel getting married. And then next week, we'll throw ourselves into another awkward situation with Shiva Baby. Please join us. You look great. Oh, no, I'm so fat. Stop it. No, you... I would swear to God that you were puking again. You know, I can really see rehab has done wonders for you, Kim. Darling, hi. Is your sister behaving herself? I'm not exactly sure what that means. I'm Shiva the Destroyer, and your harbinger of doom for this evening. It's going to be perfect. Oh, God! Lahaya! Honey, don't swear. I don't think it's... Can you smoke here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone in the house is looking at me like I'm a sociopath. I mean, what do you expect me to do? Burn the house down? That was a mattress fire. Okay, you know what? Fine. Dad, she lies to everybody. What are you doing? You don't get to sit around for the rest of my life deciding what I'm supposed to be like. Are they going to play all weekend? When Anne Hathaway's Kim Buckman stands up to give a toast to the rehearsal dinner and Rachel getting married, your heart sinks because you know it's going to be a disaster. And not a familiar disaster like the off-color jokes or shapeless anecdotes you normally hear from people not accustomed to giving speeches. It's a disaster specific to Kim, whose life has been in such constant crisis that she has trouble seeing the world from any other lens. This is her sister Rachel's wedding weekend, but she's getting all the attention, which isn't entirely something she can control. When you know there's a time bomb under the table, you tend to get distracted by the ticking sound. Kim's speech is a train wreck from the obligatory moment when she grabs the mic and it squawks with feedback. She rambles. She makes some poor attempts at self-deprecation. And she tries to use the occasion to make amends with her sister over the considerable harm her addiction has wrought in their relationship, an effort at once humiliating, ill-timed, and inadequate. Yet we feel for Kim in this moment, because it is plainly obvious that she should not be at this wedding. She is expecting too much from herself, and her family is expecting too much from her. We can see the tenuousness of her grip on sobriety as others are lifting their glasses to the bride and groom. We can see all the triggers popping off around her, and we can feel the resentment of those who are eternally disappointed in her. Directed by Jonathan Demme and written by Jenny Lumet, the daughter of Sidney Lumet, Rachel Getting Married has the rough-and-ready feel of a Dogma 95 production with handheld photography, unfussy lighting schemes, and an emphasis on spontaneity. It would have paired nicely with the celebration. At the point where she gives her toast, we have not yet learned of the root of the animosity towards her. The only hint is when Kim walks through the tidied-up room of a child that we have not yet met. We discover later, at a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, that the child was Kim's little brother Ethan, and that her addiction led to the car accident that ended his life. How do you come back from that? For Kim and her family, that's an open question. In one particularly heartbreaking conversation, she asks if she sacrificed all the love she's allowed for this life because she killed her little brother. Kim doesn't know the answer, and neither does Rachel or their father Paul, who haven't given up on her, even as they struggle to mask their frustration and grief. Even in moments of joy, like a dishwasher loading race between Paul and Rachel's fiancé, Sydney, 
Ethan is always a heavy presence in their lives. And yet, Rachel getting married is still a Jonathan Demi picture. And based on what we see here, Demi could have had a second career as a very well-connected wedding planner. In keeping with the intimate feel of the movie overall, not to mention the music-crazed funkiness of Demi's work in general, the wedding is a harmonious mishmash of cultures, sounds, and traditions. And in the context of the drama at its center, the wedding itself is a force for good, a way of reinforcing the camaraderie of loved ones and the celebration of two families coming together. Life is full of births and deaths, even when they're not literal. And the wedding is an answer to Kim's question about whether she's entitled to any love in her life. Rachel's wedding is the birth of something new. And there are little moments before and during the ceremony that suggest other green shoots too, like the way Rachel quietly comforts Kim when we might expect her to be furious instead. Demi was always optimistic about the human potential for decency and reconciliation. To him, there's no such thing as exhausting second chances. Amends. Now, usually followed by four, offset a disability or frustration by development in another direction. Mm -hmm. Yes. But you've never said anything to me that's remotely apologetic, yet all of a sudden at my wedding dinner in front of everybody, you decide to grace us all with your development. I just got home. Gee. Everybody and guests, just in case you might be thinking about something else for five minutes, like, I don't know, my sister's wedding, they just cut me loose. I'm a loose cannon. Hey, anybody up for some rehab humor? Because I'm really, really fine with acknowledging my disease. Hey, and now watch me be really selfless and weave a lovely blanket apology to my sister for being just a, a tad out of her loop. You are so Rachel, cynical. Rachel, she's making an effort here. Oh, an effort? Is that what that was? Because I think she presumes that since everything has always revolved around her disease, that everything else is going to revolve around her recovery. That's what I think. Rachel, she just got home. Again. Obligatory first question. What is your history with Rachel getting married, and, and how does it play for you in the year 2021? Yeah, well, you know, I liked it when it came out, and I loved it watching it a second time. I'm mad at myself for not doing cartwheels over it the first time. I merely <laughs> thought it was good. So I'd like to go back in time and slap myself across the face and say, no, you idiot. This is a borderline perfect movie. It's it's so good. And maybe it's because Demi's dead now. And I I realize that that's really quite sad. I mean, he wasn't that old. Um, no. And I feel like he wasn't done, you know? Like, he would have been one of those filmmakers that would have consistently been working a very long time and always staying fresh because clearly he knows how to he doesn't care about budgets. If his budgets were to shrink, he would he would make a movie for a million dollars. He'd find a way. He'd get top shelf actors to work with him because they'd want to. And he would find fresh faces. I mean, that's something else that's so great about this is that there are a lot of, you know, all those periphery characters in the film, the ones who aren't famous musicians like Robin Hitchcock or sister Carol East, the dance hall singer. Just the other people, they're, you look up who they are and they're like, oh, that guy did a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He was so great at finding, you know, fresh faces and it brings such a warmth to the movie. So I think it's just better now. The only negative you could say is that maybe the video stock looks a little dated, but who cares, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that, that you quickly ignore that five minutes in. You know, it looks like oh, a shot on high eight or something. It doesn't look that great. But, you know, that, that doesn't bother me too much. What about the rest of you? Well, I think you came back from Toronto saying this was your favorite movie of the year, and and I, I don't think I'm so easily influenced that when I saw it, I also thought it was my favorite movie of the year. Uh, I mean, it, it really blew me away at the time, and I had not really been that huge on Demi's 
preceding films, like most immediate films leading up to this, were, didn't score that hard for me. Um, although I like them fine, I should probably revisit like the Manchurian Candidate. I know people mm -hmm. really do like that film, uh, but it seemed like not quite there to me at the time. But this one just completely blew me away, and it, it captures just my. I think my favorite thing about it is like you know at, a, at, at weddings, at funerals, at gatherings like this. You know, it, it's the places where emotions are just right on the surface good and bad and it just captures that feeling from the beginning to end and and, and all, carries it all the way through I mean, i'm a big fan of this one yeah i i think i know i saw this at a uh a screening a press screening i think if it wasn't my first it was one of my first like press screenings at the av club like i was still an av club baby and wasn't going to <laughs> you know screenings but i remember seeing this early and that like feeling really special and like I, I think I probably like overheard Scott talking about how much he liked it and I definitely remember like liking it a lot at the time but I never revisited it for whatever reason I don't rewatch movies that much I, I guess but you know what always stuck with me like when I thought about the movie in the years after was like the wedding itself, you know, this sort of like music filled multicultural celebration uh, with, you know, the TV on the radio guy at the center of it. It was just like, there was so unlike any sort of on-screen wedding I had seen up to that point. And I, I like I've seen since I think. So, you know, I had fond memories of it, if not especially strong memories of it. And watching it this time, I was kind of nervous. <laughs> so a little backstory, uh, I have been engaged for about two and a half years now and have postponed my own wedding twice due to the pandemic. And it is uh, hopefully happening uh, this this coming fall. But I- You're halfway to the five-year engagement. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. I like that movie, actually. Um, <laughs> in that- time, I have not really been able to watch weddings on screen, you know? Uh, it's not a thing I want to <laughs> Uh, watch right now. But, you know, we're kind of getting on the other side of this pandemic. I'm vaccinated. It's not, it seems like the wedding is indeed going to happen. So I was like, okay, this is my foray back into wedding-based entertainment. And it was a great way to go back into it. But this time, my focus was like actually much less on the wedding itself and the sort of spectacle of it. And it was much more on this family dynamic and specifically like the two sisters played by Anne Hathaway and Rosemarie DeWitt and Bill Irwin as their dad, I think is just like such the the three of them have such an interesting dynamic. And then the sort of satellite figures around them, um, Anna Devere Smith and the mom, Deborah Winger, you know, just this family unit is there's so much that's like unsaid, but also so much that's said in the way that those kind of play together and come together on screen, I think was just really amazing to watch. Yeah, I, I'm still a big fan of this movie. Uh, I only cried. Well, no, I cried a lot during the, <laughs> the, 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 the wedding scenes, but only during the wedding scenes, not mm. not the entire way through. Ah, so okay. I feel good about that. <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, uh, his last feature, Ricky and the Flash, which I love, that ends at a wedding, too, which I didn't realize until just now. The guy loved shooting weddings, you know? It was... Uh... He was really good at it, too. <laughs> I mean, really I, no, I mean this, this is... Uh, Easily one of my favorite movie weddings, uh, which I will get into in a little bit. But uh, I mean, as far as my impressions of it, I mean, obviously I loved it. it you know, it was raving about it at the time before Keith and other people got to see it. And it holds up perfectly well now. I mean, there is a an interesting dated aspect to it. The, the style of the film 
I think works for it. I mean, it's it's uh, it has a kind of sense of spontaneity in life and things caught on the fly. But it also is like, okay, we're kind of, this is like kind of a post-dogma, let's get used to digital video type of project, which kind of put, situates it at a certain point, which again, it's fine. And I actually think it's quite artfully shot. It's not so rough. I mean, it's Declan Quinn. He knows how to shoot a movie. But otherwise, I think Keith said it well about all the emotions that are on the surface here. They're so strong in both directions. There's, you know, because there's such tragedy and heartbreak in this family, in this film, and then the the wedding itself, and uh, it is such a lift, and you really get this the fullness of Demi's humanity, you know, and it made me think like he's just one of the people who we've lost that are are most precious, I think, in terms of just like we need Jonathan Demi right now more than ever, and it's <laughs> it, you know that was kind of an impression I had watching. Rachel getting married again is just like we need somebody who who has that kind of faith in people is able to kind of see you know anticipate their best selves anticipate their potential and it, and it was funny because the last Demi film I, I saw again revisited again recently was uh, Silence of the Lambs because uh, I wrote a little bit on the on the anniversary for Guardian and if you look at that film now you know it's got all of the markings of a serial killer movie it's influenced many other serial killer movies but god there's just the amount of heart he brings to even something like that is so striking compared to seven and films like that it's not to say that seven is heartless exactly but there's just not this like obsessive cataloging of you know fetishes and you know and, and kind of grinding your face in the in the mud all the time and i think there's just an attempt to kind of eke out as much from the characters and from the actors as possible you know and i and uh, i appreciated that appreciated that and, and saw obviously tons of it here in Rachel getting married I think you know it's a very emotional experience and left me feeling really good yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. just despite everything it's a movie that really only he could make I mean the script is fine no disrespect to Jenny Lumet who who now is a producer on Star Trek believe it or not but um the script is bare bones, you know, and I think in any other director's hands, it could have been okay, but he really brings an attitude toward it and lets, you know, he shoots actors in a way that nobody else does, and he shoots the chaos of the wedding and the prep scenes and the spontaneity in a way that is just fun. Like, you just want to be there, you know, and it's like that in all of his movies. I mean, maybe a little less in something like silence of the lambs obviously but you know it sounds lambs is exciting you know you you want to be there too but like the most recent demi film that i revisited was melvin and howard not that long ago which you know on paper again that could have been another kind of grim 70s new hollywood thing but that's not his his vibe is he is sui generis he does his own thing he has his totally own style and really a mark that it really comes through in this movie in a way it's like the most demi movie of all this one it really because, you know, the plot is minimal. There's not even, like, there's large sections where nobody's talking. It's just it's just kinetic energy, and it's exciting. It's it's something that nobody else could do. And I think there we have to, like, look to or the other part of Demi's filmography that we haven't really touched on yet, which is the concert films. He did some mm. great concert films. And, you know, the man knew how to capture the energy of a big production, <laughs> you know, like the a, a, a 
large wedding is ultimately not that different from a concert in, in terms of, you know, there being a sort of performative aspect to it and there being a behind the scenes, uh, you know, although I guess he never really kind of got too much into the behind the scenes stuff in his concert films, unless I'm misremembering. There there's like uh, the Justin Timberlake movie, I think it ends with them breaking down the set and things like yeah, that like yeah. the day after. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, musical performance is a huge part of this movie, too. And like, as I understand it, he basically just had these musicians roaming the, you know, during filming, and they were encouraged to, like, basically improvise a lot of, of their performance to kind of just match what was happening. And I feel like that is something that very few directors would would encourage to just have random music of appearing in the middle of your shot. But I think, uh, you know, Demi just like knew how to work with that. And I think he liked it. I think he, he I mean, you can feel the energy it brings to the movie just to have this kind of ever present, you know, roaming soundtrack. I think to connect your point to what Jordan was saying that that is the remarkable thing about Demi. I think there's really only a handful of directors that you can say that no matter what they're doing, what genres they're working in, even like as as you were saying, crossing between concert film and narrative film, you know it's their movie. You know, I mean, I think I think Truffaut was kind of like that, uh, where you could do something, you could do Four Hundred Blows or the Bride, the uh, you know, the Bride Wore Black and 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 whatever, and and they'd still feel like Truffaut films. Uh, and I think Demi is one of the. I can't really think of too many others, frankly, that that could just no matter what you could kind of throw whatever film you want at them and it ends up being their sort of sort of movie yeah uh, you could throw a women in prison movie at him and he'd do something <laughs> interesting with it <laughs> and he did uh, yeah he sure did caged heat so i want to kind of dig in a little bit in some of the relationships in the, the movie particularly the big sort of trifecta at its center you know we really are kind of thrown into this situation and we kind of have to guess i guess a little bit at what the history is between Kim and her sister and Kim and her dad. And uh, and I would I'm guess that's the question I would ask to the group. You know, how would you distinguish the relationships here between Kim and those two folks? And uh, what sense do you get of where they're at in terms of uh, patience with her at this moment? Uh, well, you know, it's funny because at first dad is much more friendly with her and huggy kissy. And the, the sister is more like, you know, keeping her at arm's length. And then the truth of the matter, I, mean, I am not a licensed psychologist, however, but what the vibe I get is that he has not even begun to deal with accepting what happened. You know, he's just shut it all down. He is in total denial about what she's done, which is why he's just like, it's okay, everything's fine, and I'm going to protect you. Everything's good. Don't worry. And he's making jokes, whereas the sister has really, it's really landed. It's like, oh, my fucked up sister killed my brother you know and she didn't mean it but that's you know holy shit and so she's letting it out she's letting the steam out periodically and letting the steam out as anyone who ever makes chili in an instapot knows can sometimes <laughs> hurt if you're not if you're standing in the wrong spot so uh i, I anticipated it, you, that was where you're going with that <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting because at first you think oh the sister's got problems she's not but no, I think the sister is more on the path to healing than dad is. That's that's my armchair psychology. <laughs> I mean, every shot of Bill Irwin is kind of heartbreaking in this movie. But the last shot of, of Bill Irwin and, and her saying daddy or, or dad or whatever it is she says is is just one of the movie. One moment in the movie just, just guts me. You know, I mean, he is... 
an amazing. I mean, I, I know primarily he's not a dramatic actor most of the time. He's more of a more of a clown most of the time, right? I mean, he's Mr. Noodle. Mr. Noodle. Um, yeah. yeah, but uh, uh, but he's just so well suited to this. I mean, every just every microscopic twitch of change in expression registers on, on his face. I mean, I think you see that most strongly in what is one of the standout scenes of the movie for me, which is the dishwasher race, mm. and particularly how the dishwasher race ends mm. with that that hidden plate, you know, making its appearance. And just the way the energy just shifts on a dime. Like I felt it. Like I physically felt that moment. And it's on him to to sell it. And I think he does really well. And you, I mean, in that particular moment, you really hurt so much for Kim too, who's so swept up in the moment and everybody's mm-hmm. having a really great time. And then this plate appears and everything comes back and it's on her again. <laughs> you know, her brother's presence that is uh that brings out all the attention back to her in a, in a really bad way. Uh, you know, the, the Bill Irwin character reminds me so much of Laura Linney's character in, in You Can Count On Me, like at the beginning of You Can Count On Me when she's just so excited to see her brother again, you know, her only brother. You know, they've lost their parents. She hasn't seen him in forever. I think there's a level of expectation that she brings to the occasion that's totally outsized. And she's setting, she's setting herself up for disappointment which of course happens when we when she actually starts having this conversation with her brother at a restaurant and, and he's kind of telling her all that's happening and what his plans are and it's all very very disappointing to her and i think that's kind of where bill Owen's character paul is in this movie of just really being excited about this occasion of wanting it to go well of being very attentive overly attentive to kim to try to keep everything you know under control and to try to make something great out of this weekend and um and then it's becomes impossible to do that and so when it becomes impossible it's just kind of heartbreaking to witness yeah i mean it's kind of just an impossible situation for this family like setting this at you know something as celebratory and you know normal as a wedding you know or, or common i guess as a wedding it puts all these expectations on how people are supposed to behave and how families are supposed to behave and how families are supposed to feel how family members are supposed to feel towards each other you know during a wedding and this is a family that has a lot of unresolved issues this is not the venue for it in in so many ways but the biggest way I think is that, again, there's this expectation of, you know, everyone's happy, everyone's celebratory. And when that doesn't mesh with the experience of the people who are in that moment, I think it's really, it's really upsetting. Um, and I think that's what Kim is experiencing through, throughout. Like, I think she wants for this to be a sort of a redemptive experience for her and her family. And it can't be that in this setting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's foolish to think that everything's going to be fine, you know? And I think that's what Dad is hoping. And um, I think that uh, Rachel is smart enough to be like, no, it's it's not fine. Mm-hmm. Why are you pretending that it is? Maybe the reason why, because Genevieve, you said you hadn't watched it since, and I hadn't watched it since, even though we both loved it, is that it's not a depressing movie, but it's like, it's an exhausting movie. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot out of you, you know? And even though like and like there's not a lot of stuff that happens like it's like they sit around the dinner table and talk like there's not but it's like it really grabs you somehow it really and everybody in it is so good that you really just care about everybody you know there's no bad guys in this movie at all 
and it just is a big workout, you know, <laughs> which is why it does when it ends with like 15 minutes straight of no talking and everybody dancing, you know, you, you just, you need that. You're like, oh, thank God. You know, it's, uh, it's something. They did it. She got, she got, she got married. Yeah, she gets married. <laughs> and the last shot is so good, right? They're just sitting there and like there's a dog in the last shot, just yeah. like barking, oh, yeah. running around. Oh my God. It's the I'll best movie the ever made. <laughs> it's so good. You know, it's funny. What I was talking before about like all the peripheral characters. I happened to and I kind of forgot he was in it. I'm kind of friends with friends with I haven't seen him in a decade, but the, his character's name is Wedding Czar. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, Bo- and he's Bocia? Yeah, Bosia. And he's he's in he was in some of Demi's other films, and I, I'll, I'll tell you, how, like, this is a great example of, of how Demi is, like, who else puts the feelies in a movie, right? I mean, like, he's a guy who does whatever the hell he wants. So Bo Sia was a performance poet, which is like a slam poet, the, the lowest form of entertainment, you know, the, the, the word. But I, I happen to be, I used to be very good friends with some people in that world. So I knew I was very, and I'm still friends with someone who was very good friends with Bo. So I had seen Bo perform and, you know, he'd get up on stage and he would kind of improv about, do his poems and like do it slam poetry style, which was big in the year 2002 or whatever it was. <laughs> and somehow Jonathan Demi saw one of his things, you know, this is pre YouTube, but he saw one of his things and put him in a bit part in whatever movie came right before Rachel getting married. I think it was the truth about Charlie. Yeah. Truth or, about Charlie or Manchurian Kate. One or the other one, mm-hmm. either, either one. And like got to know him and then said like, Oh, in my next movie, I'm going to need a guy to be the MC. And if you watch the movie and because I kind of know him, I was keeping a special eye on him throughout the film. You can tell everything is improv mm-hmm. and he's just kind of like romping around the stage, just like freestyling. And he never really gets a full sentence in. The editing is always choppy around him because he's the extra guy, which I think works for the film. But it's just a great example of Jonathan Demi being like, oh, I saw this cool kid downtown and he reads performance poetry and I'm going to make him in charge of the wedding in a movie called Rachel Getting Married. You know, he's the umpire in a way, you know, and it's just, but he's just like some guy wearing crazy glasses and running around like a lunatic. It's just, uh, it's just really, you know, a great example of just the, exuberance and excitement in this movie that nobody else could pull off i think and i was actually thinking while watching this time like without the demi factor this could be a very i could see this as a play just very focused on the conversations and the interactions between these family members and you know again sort of what is said and unsaid and what what that you know means like the dialogue has that theatrical quality to it but there is nothing like theater like about this film and i think that improvised feeling that Demi brings to it through Bosia and the the musicians I mentioned earlier. And as I understand it, like a lot of the performances are, you know, there's a lot of improvisation in the performances too. So I think that's what, obviously, that's what gives it this energy. But it, in another person's hands, like this could be kind of a staid film, I think. You know, one, th- one thing I always think about with Demi that kind of applies to this movie is that you know my favorite scene or sequence in philadelphia is the very end of the movie is the coda of the movie when it's just the neil young song which i absolutely love and playing behind a scene of people at a wake you know exchanging casseroles and hugs and little anecdotes and and it's just like it's such a it seems like such a simple thing but i think it's extremely difficult to capture like the vibe 
of an event like that, you know, or the feeling of it, you know, and, and I think that's kind of what you get throughout, certainly throughout the wet weddings, any of the wedding related scenes in Rachel getting married is just, is just, you know, a non-chaotic, coherent sense of spontaneous sense of kind of a vibe that sort of grips this event and, and, and it sort of takes over the film and sort of determines the film's tone. It's just, it's a, it's a kind of a magical quality and it's not something that is easily achieved because I can't think of a lot of people who have done it quite like him. So that's one thing. But I also wanted to, since I'm hosting this, I want to get into some other parts of the, this movie. I wanted to talk about one interesting sort of narrative strategy of the film, which is that it waits about 50 minutes to reveal uh, what happened to Ethan. And I was curious what you thought of this narrative strategy, you know, and what kind of role, I guess, this unseen character plays in the film. I think it's a smart move. I mean, you kind of know as soon as the first time the name Ethan comes up and says like, you know, his spirit is still with us. And then everybody looks sad. You go, Oh, you know, and you, you kind of know, like, that's coming back. And then it gets mentioned again. And then by the time, do you see the plate before she says something at the 12-step program? Or um, I think you see, I no, think... you see that she does a 12-step program before the yeah. plate, I think. Yeah. Mm. I think by the time you get to her saying it, you, you kind of know. I, you know, I, I think it happens kind of naturally, you know? It's, it's, they don't force it. And uh, it comes, like, when it comes, like, listen, I mean, I've been to many weddings where someone had recently died and somebody always says and so and so's spirit is with us and it's a touching moment and now you know think about that and you know <laughs> you know kim's not in the room right now so we can talk about her imagine you being at that wedding and somebody says you know the spirit of ethan is still with us and you're like and she fucking did it right over there i mean like how would you feel that would be insane mm. so it's tough it's tough it's a weird situation and that's what makes this movie so so intense but yet it plays out so naturally that that you just kind of you know you still love everybody so i think it i think it's really the way they ease into it is uh it was a good move by jenny lumet by the whole gang i think it also makes the experience of watching it a second time or beyond that uh much different knowing what you know and i don't know you know i, I think there's a lot of movies that that uh that's true of but but watching us kim doing sort of the self-deprecating bit about being in and out of rehab at part of the wedding at the, the rehearsal dinner is, is cringy enough already. But if you know people aren't just thinking, oh, she's an addict, she's trouble, they're thinking she's the reason Ethan's not here, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, there's, it, it's that much more uncomfortable. So I, I think it, it is in some ways a richer experience to see it a, a second time. I do like how low key it is. It's not like set up like a big revelation. It's, it's this confession that, that comes kind of naturally out of the, out of the story itself. Cause you know that everybody that was at that wedding if they weren't that close to the family, somebody said something in the car. They'd be like, look, don't bring <laughs> yeah. up brothers. Don't bring up car crashes because, you know, yeah. like, you know, that had to have happened. You know, it's like like that one guy who's always walking around with the video camera. He's kind of like off to the side, not that important. But you know that he got a talking to beforehand. It's crazy. I did find myself wondering if that was, in fact, the case, because like we get a couple hints that Rachel and Sydney like maybe haven't been together that long. It's their family's first time meeting each other. I, I did find myself wondering what Sydney's family knows about this yeah. family's history. 
Oh, they yeah. all know. That's not something that. Yeah, how do, you, yeah. You, you're not even being like a malicious gossip. Like you're telling. Yeah. Like you have to. That's something that everybody talks about. I mean, but but it's it. also something that can be avoided in a way. I mean, you can kind of. Yeah. You can. The, the, you know, the details of of, yeah. of Kim's role in it is more what I wonder. You know how much is is known versus just that. You know oh, there was a, there was a car accident. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, I will say a couple of things about that narrative strategy. Is that one? I think I think again, as Keith says, when you do watch it a second time, those early indicators take on more weight. I mean, just her walking through this room that has been completely preserved and neat. It just as you know it would have been if ethan were still around is just such a haunting image now that we you know know the context for it but i also think that that you all get to focus more on her as just an addict you know and without this knowing the rest of the story without knowing about this additional baggage you can kind of get a sense of of how you know many times she's been in and out of rehab and how much she's you know tested people's patience and and how difficult a time she has you're know, relating to her family and having any kind of normal relationship to them and also just how difficult it is for her to be in this spot i mean just to go straight from rehab to this place that is triggering her in a million different ways even before we know this terrible thing that happened in the in the past so i think that's a pretty clever way of going about it uh, and it also i think it one relationship and the other relationship the film really sort of moved me was was the relationship between her and the other addict uh, played by mather zickle in a really really good performance he's he's sydney's best man and they just happen to go to the same they don't know each other they they spot each other at a narcotics anonymous meeting and then when they come back he happens to be in the wedding too and and uh you know they connect <laughs> physically and then but also <laughs> he gets her and kind of under you know there's a way that he understands her and, and talks to her that's just different from everybody else i think there, there's an experience that he brings that rachel and paul can't match they're not addicts uh, they, they don't know what she's going through and uh, I, I found that contrast to be quite moving well, there's even like a scene where he kind of like serves as an addict translator. <laughs> I think it's it's when she uh, like when she runs off, you know, and they're all kind of worried about her. And I, I forget the, exactly what he says, but, you know, he he kind of is like, you know, this is what it's like. He gives them the tools to empathize <laughs> that they maybe don't have because it's clearly very frustrating having Kim in your life long, long term. Like one of the other things I admire about this characterization in this film is that like it does allow Kim to be terrible in some ways like the um the scene where where they're fighting after the toast and Rachel reveals that she's pregnant and Kim's just like no you can't do that it's like such a like a little sibling fight moment but it also just speaks to her self-absorption which is like kind of a given of being an, an, an addict like there it's a very like internal individual thing you know and you are very much focused on on yourself first and foremost and putting kim in a situation where she has to put the focus outward i think just like scrambles her a bit yeah well and then there's the scene in the, the salon as well where she oh god <laughs> that is so brutal where she <laughs> is is uh uh he listens back to this that inspirational story. That guy didn't need to do that. that. That guy did not need to do that. <laughs> he thought he was. He thought he was being nice. He didn't know he was. Ah, uh... oh, that was rough. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is an example of, of I don't know, we, we come back to Ebert's quote about the empathy machine, movies being an empathy machine all the time. But I mean, like, if Kim were someone I was a casual acquaintance with, I would cross the street to avoid her. Course, uh, but, yeah. but my heart is just completely open for her throughout yeah. this whole movie, even even if I find what she's doing really rough to watch and, and you know, and, and the character herself, not like likable in, in, in traditional ways, but you know, I want nothing but the best for her. I mean, she's like, this is one of a handful of fictional characters that I, I occasionally wonder, wonder what they're up to these days. You know, <laughs> I think about, I think about Kim, I think about Paige from the Americans, like what, 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 what's she doing? Is she okay? Oh you know, I worry about some of these people. You know, Keith, uh, I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story. So, so the person that I feel about that the fictional character, sure most is uh well eventually she became colonel major kira norris from star trek d space oh, sure. nine no no I, is I, someone I, that i've spent a lot of time going is she okay because i love major <laughs> kira so much i really like in a, in a psychotic way so i've gotten to know nana visitor who played her a little bit and i did once confess this to her that like i've had a like and not i don't do this a lot but i've had a few sleepless nights wondering how major kira was <laughs> and i'm like is major kira okay and i'm like i'm and I, when i said this to her i'm like well i just blew it like i sort of had an acquaintanceship going with this actress she thought i was cool but now she thinks i'm another wacko lunatic star trek maniac <laughs> but she took me by the hand and she looked me in the eye and she said Kira's okay, and I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I wanted, I wanted to uh, explode into a thousand pieces. But she told me this. She's like, she's okay. She's doing okay. I know she is. And I'm like, oh my god. So we get, we'll just do a special episode about Deep Space Nine because I have a lot of thoughts about that show too. But <laughs> <laughs> some, some other time. Yeah, I, I don't even know how that would fit into the uh, framework here, but but uh, if it does, if it ever does, we we'll, we'll bring it in. So there's one other relationship, I guess, I wanted to bring up in in this movie which is which is deborah winger the deborah winger character mm-hmm. the, the the mother who is outside of this family now that there was a divorce and and she's with someone else and uh her relationship to both of her daughters and to paul is pretty strained and then of course you, you get this terrible fight that leads to you know a suicide attempt on kim's part uh what do we, what do we make of that character and that those relationships I mean, it's a great scene, the scene where they confront each other, because there's so much, it's like there's so much that hasn't been said. Kim kind of dumps on the mom, how could you let me be alone with the brother because you knew I was a drug addict? And there's probably something that's like very, very uh, subtle. But, you know, early in the film, she mentions that when she was a teenager, she was a model, which I think is a nice touch because she's Anne Hathaway and she's beautiful. So, you know, you want to address that because, you know, why is this gorgeous woman in this, in this very realistic movie? And they mentioned that she was a model and that even when she was 15, she was high. So there's probably a little bit of like anger toward her parents for putting her in that world, you know, because they did not, you know, a lot of young people that, that go into that field get a you know get screwed up and maybe she feels like she wasn't protected enough so there's a lot of like blame going back and forth and then when it just explodes into that they beat the crap out of each other and they cut you don't really get to see the whole fight which i think is a really nice touch it's just um you know it's great drama but it's so sad you know it's just this movie's so sad it's like you want them to be okay and it's like nah they're not there yet they're still working this out so it's a great uh, small part for deborah winger because she doesn't 
you know, you don't see her too much. Even no. in 2008, you didn't see her a lot. And for her to come in, have a small but extremely pivotal role was great. Like, it was a great bit of casting, I think. She's great. And, and just you could just tell this is, you know... This is not. A, I don't think it's. This is an optimistic movie in many ways. Uh, um, I mean, Demi is fundamentally, I think, an optimistic filmmaker. Uh, but that's not a relationship that's ever going to be salvaged. And, and, and there's no, there's no redemption there. I, I don't think for, and, and at least in, in in her mom's eyes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the obviously the fight sticks out, but the scene with uh, Deborah Winger that really, uh, you know, is kind of imprinted on my brain after this viewing is her departure from the wedding mm-hmm. and her, you know, talking to her daughters who both are clearly just shocked and saddened that she is bailing, you know, and it it makes very clear like what you were saying, Keith, like this is not a relationship that is is going to heal. But at the same time, we get a glimpse of the relationship between Kim and Rachel, you know, maybe starting to mend just a little bit, you know, and in a way, I think maybe that bond, that tenuous bond between them maybe gets even a little stronger in the face of their mother's coldness and at, at the end there. So, you know, I guess that's the the upside of it. Yeah, I mean, they they, they get to close rank t- together. I mean, it's, it's a moment of sisterly bonding to be able to kind of uh, be together and uh, being upset with their mother and and I think it also reemphasizes or emphasizes that the mother just hasn't been present uh, uh, in the aftermath of this situation in the same way that Rachel and and her father have in terms of, you know they they they're I think bailing on that the wedding is is just is only is not the first time she's kind of left a difficult situation behind at the same time, I completely understand her feeling too exhausted to remain at that wedding. Because <laughs> I think, if, mm-hmm. especially if that's not a wedding you particularly want to be at, it would be a very exhausting wedding. <laughs> so, so let me ask that question then: What would you, Genevieve Kosky, want to be at this wedding? I mean, I wish I were cool enough to be at this wedding <laughs> to have a wedding like this. You know, just mm-hmm. to, uh, I mean, it's a. You know, it just it raises so many questions about both of these families' backgrounds that, you know, because, you know, a, a wedding is reflective of, of the couple and, and their experience together. And there's just like this like kind of cultural mishmash, musical cultural mishmash of, of, of this wedding. Like, presumably, it speaks to shared experiences between them, but we don't really like get the details of those experiences uh, or we, we get some but you know it's amazing to watch and i'm sure if i was there i would just be like dumbfounded and probably not really know <laughs> what to do but i mean it's beautiful carol did a great job <laughs> like, <laughs> carol did a very good job <laughs> i love yeah. anna devere smith she doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie but like her presence is just like i just love seeing her on screen she has such a distinctive on-screen presence to me and she's like just kind of a comforting background character here, but it was really nice to to see her. And yeah, she's Carol quietly did a good one job. of the best performances in the movie, I think, because I, I think it's it's um, you know Kim has nothing but resentment for her; doesn't really seem to, to care for her all that much. But she's more I mean, she behaves more like a mother to her than her own mother throughout this film. 
Uh, would I like to be at the wedding? Is uh, you're asking me to ask oh, that sure. question too? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, part of me wants to roll my eyes, just sort of like the every culture is up for grabs for our wedding uh, element mm-hmm. to it. On the other hand, this family seems to have friends and connections with every single culture, so maybe they have more of a claim to wear sorry and have various uh, chants or whatever. This rich Connecticut on. family. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, in the, in the music business, so music races right, exactly. you know, barriers. You know, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd want to be there. I mean, Robin Hitchcock's performing. I'd, I'd want to be there. <laughs> for that it was raining though (laughs) i have been to a version of a wedding like this that was very bad and i'm not going to say whose it was because it was (laughs) it was someone in my family um but uh but it was like one of those things where it's just like let's just do like this total mishmash of traditions and and let's just let's just break every possible rule and it was like kind of a mess whereas this is just so harmonious and kind of cool and it's something that's come that of course has come naturally to Jonathan Demme. I mean, you know, if you look at a film like films like Married to the Mob and, and, and something wild, I mean, he's always trying to bring, I mean, you know, different cultures, different musical traditions together, you know, mixing and matching. I don't think there's, I think there's a, that's a part of his optimism of just like of this kind of melting pot quality to his work where he just, where he can bring, you know, the, these diverse groups together, these these traditions that wouldn't seem to, to mesh and basically proving that that not only do they mesh, but it's something it can turn into something completely unique and exciting and and hopeful. And uh, I I love this wedding. I would love to go to this. <laughs> I, I would certainly have. You know, I mean, what do you what do you have? I mean, you got Robin Hitchcock wandering around with his guitar. Uh, you just can't. And, you and can't. an amazing scarf too, like one of the best scarfs I've seen in a movie. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Well, you know, you know, it's an interesting topic because you use the phrase Scott melting pot, and I, I'm with you on that. And I remember. When the movie came out, I have a friend who who's a little bit more, he's a little bit of a contrarian guy. And when the movie came out, he maybe at the time skewed a little bit more right wing. He's not like a Trump guy, but he's a little bit more conservative. And I remember he saw the movie at the time and he was like, oh, come on. That was a bunch of phony baloney. He's like, you never see a white family and a black family getting married and nobody mentions it in the whole movie. And I'm like, well, these people were cool. They're not hung up on race, man. You know, they were they were all hip. They they didn't have to bring it. It's like, ah, it's a load of bullshit. And I remember getting on his case and being like, man, you're, you're so conservative, like cool, liberal, left wing people, man. They don't think about that. Now, that was 2008, 2021 or whatever the hell year it is right now uh, is a whole different <laughs> can of worms because you mentioned melting pot. And that's how, you know, we're, you and I, Scott, are basically the same age. So we're, uh, you know, I have that mentality, but nowadays it's not melting pot, it's cultural appropriation. And I think maybe my friend who was like a McCain style Republican, not a Trump Republican, but a little bit of a right wing guy, I think his point of view, I think the kids today, when they watch this movie, maybe left wing kids might watch this movie and, and point their finger and say this bullshit. Why aren't they talking about race? It's a black man and a white woman. Race doesn't come up. And you, me, and Demi are kind of like a melting pot. But I don't know that that would fly today. I, maybe it's, we're all, as four white people, we're obviously the best people to talk about yeah. this. <laughs> but but it's an interesting thing to think of. Like, I would be very curious to know what a 21-year-old politically active person of color would think about my friend's perspective from 2008. They might agree. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a touchy subject, and I certainly don't know what the right thing is. But I, I the thing that I find interesting is this. Tell me if you agree that I do think that a 21 year old politically active person on the left 
would be curious why no one is being explicit about race in this film. And that is a left-wing point of view. Whereas in 2008, when this movie came out, my friend who was a little bit to the right was the one saying, why aren't they talking about race? It's sort of a weird pendulum shift. Well, it, it, I mean, also keep in mind, we don't really get to spend any time with Sydney's family. We're spending all the time with the the white people, <laughs> you, right. you know, yeah. and it, it makes sense that they would not think about this aspect of, of the wedding, especially when they have this other big thing that they're very focused on. So like I could def- especially like Sydney's sister or something like I could definitely see her making some like snide comments <laughs> over to the side. <laughs> but we don't see that because that's not Demi's point of view. So it's not the movie's point of view. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Like there could be like a uh, his and her version of this movie. There could be a whole other yeah. movie from the point of view of his family and they would have a whole other take on this these nutcases <laughs> from Connecticut wearing saris and and whatnot. It's just a, it's just an interesting thing to think about. It doesn't for me it doesn't take away from the film at all. I still think it's a marvelous movie. We're going to leave it at this hot button place <laughs> and uh and, and uh pick up again with Rachel getting married uh, next week. But we'll wrap it up for now and be right back. So now is usually the time we do feedback, but we're short on emails and voicemails this week. So I wanted to use this time to ask a question of the group. Uh, I talked about how much I love the wedding that Jonathan Demi staged for Rachel getting married uh, with its beautiful trays of Indian food at the rehearsal dinner and with Robin Hitchcock performing at the reception. Uh, what is your favorite movie wedding? Or to put it another way, what is the movie wedding you would most like to claim for yourself? Genevieve? Uh, so I guess I have a few answers here because my, my brain kind of went in a few different directions with this, this question, because my first instinct, like, again, as someone who is currently planning her wedding, who is currently paying for a wedding, um, my first thought was, oh, I want the crazy rich Asians wedding. I want just like unlimited (laughs) resources. (laughs) I want to be able to have it on the top of a skyscraper and have a waterfall when I walk down the aisle. Like, yeah, that, that, that'd be great. But then more I thought, I was like, no, that's not like a wedding I would want to have. I would feel mortified having a wedding that that elaborate, but just like the idea of being able to like just go off the leash and do whatever you want uh, with your wedding is very appealing to me at this current point in my life. But, you know, stepping back to like movie weddings that I actually like enjoy watching uh, and are, are memorable and kind of the, I guess, the vibe of the wedding that I would want to attend. I thought about Steel Magnolias, which is one of my favorite movies and a, a very uh, fun movie wedding, uh, what with the armadillo cake and the blush and bashful and, you know, just having Olympia Dukakis at your wedding would, would be great. Um, uh. But ultimately, I came down to uh, another movie from my childhood that I haven't revisited in a really long time, but uh, sticks with me, particularly the wedding, which is Father of the Bride, because it has that family wedding feel similar to uh, Rachel getting married. You know, it's at the family house a very large, beautiful family house. But, you know, it's so it has that sort of like intimate, a little more casual. I mean, obviously, Father of the Bride's whole plot is about getting increasingly not casual, but still like having this sort of bonded family experience at the center of your wedding, I think is what, you know, really speaks to me about that wedding and that movie. And uh, she gets to wear comfortable shoes, too. So, you know, (laughs) it's all good. Jordan, how about you? 
Um, I'm going to give you my cinephile answer and then my embarrassingly honest answer. My <laughs> cinephile answer is, and although it's not a pleasant film, I always admired the wedding from The Deer Hunter. Maybe this makes me crazy, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they see... they. Apart from the fact that they were about to go off to Vietnam and maybe get killed, they were having a blast. They were, yeah. and it was like low maintenance. They're drinking beer out of a can. They're just dancing forever, listening to fun sort of Eastern European music in like a gym, you know. And uh, <laughs> it just looked like a lot of fun. I would love to be at that deer hunter wedding. I think that's my cinephile answer. My real answer, and I say this only to you as friends, hopefully hopefully nobody else is listening. I'd be too embarrassed to ever say it in public, but here goes. I would like to attend the wedding of a really bad movie. That movie is Star Trek Nemesis, <laughs> where Riker and Troy get married, because I'd get to hang out with all my Star Trek pals, you know? I'd, you know, Worf is there getting drunk, and Data is singing Irving Berlin, and Captain Picard gives a speech and it's such a great speech. So uh, and even Wesley Crusher is there, although he doesn't say anything. They cut out his dialogue. So I, I thought about this long and hard and like, yeah, I want to go to the space wedding with my Star Trek pals. That's my answer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God this isn't going on the air. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Keith, how about you? Yeah, I got me thinking about how, I mean, you know, when anyone asked me, what's your favorite movie, what's your favorite musical, what's your favorite, whatever, I blank. So I had to, to think about this for a while. And it got me thinking about how most of the times wedding scenes are not key to a movie. They're, they tend to be like the payoff for mm-hmm. for a romantic comedy or something. So they're kind of like the end of the narrative, not part of the narrative itself. But so I don't know. I, I was thinking in terms of ones, you know, great scenes. I was thinking of The Graduate's a great wedding scene. I don't think I'd want to necessarily be at that one. I think I'd probably like, to, if I could find a way to like sink into the background of the opening scene of The Godfather, I think that'd be a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just kind of just observe the rich tapestry of, 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 uh, under underworld life going on and and like uh, the music of a, a character who's definitely not Frank Sinatra. That's definitely not based on Frank Sinatra, right? Uh, you know, I think, and then the food looks good. Uh, I'll, I'll just go, I'll go with The Godfather. Would you ask yeah, a that- favor though? <laughs> um, no, I think that's, uh, those have a way of coming back to you. You just, ha- you just, you just have to be sure to tell the bride that you hope is hope her first child is a masculine, <laughs> a masculine child. child. Keith, you wouldn't, uh, sh- you wouldn't choose Godfather too. You got Frank Pantangeli. You got the nice lake. I mean, that's I- true. <laughs> well, my my wife pointed out when I was, I was talking to her with her, she pointed out that the really nice wedding is is the Italian wedding in in, in Godfather. Um, oh you know, yes, you know, that's, yes, that's that's the one you might actually want. Oh, for me uh, you know if you know what's happening going to happen next maybe not maybe not such a pleasant affair (laughs) so i would say you know i keith had kind of stole my thunder in a a lot of different ways because i was going to make also the point that he was going to make about Mm. weddings and movies which i don't think it's a great point it's a great point (laughs) it is a a great point because because i don't think a lot of attention is paid to it i think it's a lot like you know they are scenes but they're not planned like a wedding is planned. They're not planned as meticulously a lot of the time. They're just part of the movie. It's almost a matter of like how much money is going gonna, is gonna to be thrown at this wedding and what does that look like rather than getting you into the kind of detail that is invested in a movie like Rachel Getting Married or in, or, or in the, the opening of The Deer Hunter, which is like an hour or something. That movie is just, just the wedding. But I, I think if I were to choose uh, one, I, I you got to go with the Italian weddings here. I, the Godfather, any one of those weddings of the Godfather 
Godfather. The food, can you even imagine the food? You don't even see it, but it's going to be incredible. <laughs> uh, the music is great. The, the tradition is, is lovely. And the other thing I want to emphasize too, and this brings me to Goodfellas, is cash. Cash <laughs> is a great wedding gift. It's a wonderful wedding gift. Envelopes full of cash. That's what couples need to be sent on their way. Not a not not a not a toaster or whatever. They need, not a you know. I mean, it's fine when you get the little thing that you at the you go to Bed Bath and Beyond or something and you're scanning stuff. Registry. That's all. That stuff is all. That stuff is a wedding registry. <laughs> That's a very concise way of putting it, uh, Genevieve. I th- but cash. I mean, my God, that that it, what, what you can do so much as a young couple. You know, sitting on a bunch of cash. So, uh, so when uh, Lorraine Bracco is just getting envelope after envelope handed to her, getting having this bag overflowing with envelopes full of money, uh, it's pretty sweet. You know, and, so, and probably there's a lot of really good food there as well. So, uh, d- I, I this is like a that. big PSA for Genevieve's wedding. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for all cash. listeners who want to yeah. give Genevieve wedding. I think about like I might I might go as high as like a twenty dollar bill yeah. uh, for, <laughs> so, for your wedding gift. <laughs> Yeah, we'll give you what you know. Your registry, if you're registry, that's fantastic. But you know, nope. if you want Wedding. just an envelope full of cash, give me some cash. Uh, I, you know, cash at a wedding. I think I think it is like kind of an Italian thing. But because I grew up in Jersey, and it, and Italianness is is much entwined with Jersey culture, that seeped into other. You know, you don't have to be Italian to give cash at a Jersey wedding. Is what I'm saying. And I I grew up with that, and I was surprised that was not a thing elsewhere in the country. You know, it's a, you know, but at some Polish weddings, there's a, there's a shtick where the bride dances and you're supposed to safety pin money to her dress when you the dance dollar dance. The bride. You know mm. about that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I, I grew up in a, in a Polish family, but I, I never encountered the dollar dance until I went to a wedding in Wisconsin. And I guess it, it's very common in, I guess, pockets of, of the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, to just like pay money to dance with the bride. <laughs> Are you going to bring that back this fall? <laughs> if I'm allowed to dance at my wedding, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said, yeah, they have to just, you know, they have to show a, a laminated vaccination card right. and then and then also some cash. The, Genevieve, the other... you can, well, you can invent something, Genevieve. The Venmo dance would be the first one to do it <laughs> cashless because, you know, you don't want to touch somebody else's dirty money when yeah. have germs on it. Do the Venmo dance. So Jordan, I have to ask you this question then. If we're gonna get in, we're just getting into weddings. We're not even talking about the movies anymore. But like, yeah. my my wife is Jewish. Uh, my family is Christian, and the wedding gifts were divided. Kind of like most of my family, or almost all of my family, we got gifts off the registry. Most of her, her family was cash, was money. Yeah. Is that not a, a Jew- Jewish thing? You know, I always thought it was a, a Jersey thing, like a Jersey New York thing. Mm. But maybe it's a Jewish thing too. I, I, uh, it, it's certainly like it's it's a common sense thing to me. Like it does make yeah. a lot of sense. It's like you need dough. You don't, you know, if everybody gets you a blender, you know, the dough is probably better right now. Yeah. So, well, I got, well, Jordan, I got to do a little we, research. We, Jordan, we are going to count on your expertise <laughs> in our next episode. Sure. <laughs> uh, okay. So we're going to wrap this up for now, and uh, and of course we will rely on. Jordan's expertise in Jewish tradition for our next episode. Uh, but you know, next time, hopefully, we will do feedback, actual feedback. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. 
In our next episode, we'll look at Shiva Baby, an indie comedy about a young woman's odyssey among mourners who are very interested in what she's been up to lately. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads, and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us at Patreon at patreon.com nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please maximize the space in your dishwasher because you're driving me crazy. Somewhere on a desert highway She rides a Harley Davidson Her long brown hair flying in the wind She's been running half her life The chrome and steel she rides Colliding with the very air she breathes The air she breathes